You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Lynn Wright, who is the Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence and the head of the Naval Intelligence Activity. In these positions, she supports the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare, the Director of Naval Intelligence, in delivering comprehensive, substantive intelligence to Navy leadership, oversees intelligence activities within the Navy, represents the Navy within the intelligence community, creates naval intelligence policy, and performs policy oversight functions. She's also served in various leadership positions in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, the Joint Staff, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Naval Intelligence, NATO in Afghanistan, Theater Commands, and Combat Support Agencies. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Well, thank you very much. So I, I, I like to begin conversations like this with a sometimes usually it's a former practitioner, but we're very happy to have a current practitioner here to ask you a little bit about career choices. You've served across the intelligence right. community, certainly in ONI, Office of Secretary of Defense, ODNI, uh, DIA, a stint uh, where you're working with NSA. Right. Did you always want a career in intelligence or was this an accidental career path that you got into through other means? It's actually a fairly interesting story. I went to Old Dominion University down in Norfolk and uh, um, I uh, uh, was a professional bartender and I went to school a lot and uh, I accidentally graduated early and uh, and uh, so I was looking at so what am I going to do now and so I called a friend who worked for a predecessor organization for the naval intelligence activity he worked for the naval intelligence command and I said hey you guys hiring and this is the mid 1980s uh, the Reagan buildup and uh, he said yeah we uh, we are hiring he says how good are you at math and I said not so much. Uh, he says, okay, I've got just the job for you. Uh, and so I did it. I did a, a fairly perfunctory uh, uh, interview. Uh, they showed me the salary for GS5, which then was about $13,000 a year. And I said, this is way more than I'm making as a bartender. <laughs> yeah. And I said, absolutely. And uh, I really have not looked back since. So. so things have changed somewhat as far yeah. as how to get into the <laughs> career. Yeah. Um, what is good advice that you could offer for those in, in college, in grad school, or even 
who are already doing careers within the intelligence community or the military, but not within naval intelligence or, or, or you know, specific to like an MI field? Well, I tell you, it's, um, we need all kinds of people. Um, and so if you're in college or you're in graduate school and you're thinking about, I would like to be into the intelligence community, uh, I would say reach out. There are a lot of organizations, INSA, for example, uh, that has a ways of connecting uh, young people up with people who are already in the community. Um, you can go ahead and apply for jobs, for, apply for the entry-level jobs. Internships are the absolute best way because uh, the beautiful thing is, is that you start your clearance early. Mm -hmm. uh, and you may not get all the way through the process by the time you start your internship, uh, but um, generally by the time you're you've shown what you can do, um, then you can come back and your clearance will be completed and then you can, in your known quantity and we'll be happy to bring you on board. Um, within Naval Intelligence, where uh, the Navy itself is a very technologically, you know, uh, involved uh, force in the United States. However, there is a lot of room for people other than engineers and data scientists and people like that. and. And you really need a wide variety of people, a wide variety of interest. And, and uh, quite frankly, when I was doing entry-level hiring at O&I, uh, people with interesting backgrounds interest me. Right. Right? Um, people who had odd sort of uh, graduate school degrees and things like that. Because I don't need everybody who thinks like me. Right? I don't need engineer, engineers that only think one way. I need a variety of engineers. I need a variety of of uh, sort of uh, the soft, you know, sciences, you know, the social sciences, political science, uh, history majors, and things We're like that. We're not insulted when you call us soft. I know, fine, right? I know, soft <laughs> is good. I, I'm very soft. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what we're looking for are people who think, uh, can put things together, people who like puzzles, uh, and people who can communicate, write, and who are uh, not afraid of taking a stand, and I think that's really important. You got to be you got to be willing to stand up for yourself uh, against uh, you know a community that can be really tough sometimes. Uh, but if you know what's right, then uh, go for it. People may have the misperception of the military intelligence right. branches as well. If I don't want to join the Navy, it doesn't make sense for me. I, you know, I'll go work for CIA or NSA. Uh, but there's yeah. an extraordinary amount of civilian. Employees oh, yeah. in, in ONI. Correct. There's over 3,000. And we, um, uh, and quite frankly, the civilians are the core that keeps the whole business going because we are on target, on mission for our entire, entire careers. Uh, the naval officers, the enlisted folks, they come through and they'll do, you know, they'll do, you know, a substantive job, maybe a couple of first tours, substantive job. And then they're pushed into leadership and management positions, right? And so it's always uh, the civilians who keep it going. Uh, the military come in and they make it really interesting, though, because they question why is it organized that way? Or are you really doing stuff that supports the fleet? And folks, you know, it's good to have your, uh, your things questioned, you know, your ideas questioned from time to time. And that's what the military is, is they come in say, hey, this is what we need out in the fleet. You need to reorientate yourself to support the fleet. Yeah, and I think another major misperception, certainly among the kind of the civilian public, is that the military is rigid and, and not oh my goodness, a, an institution. No. I mean, 
I'm an ex-army guy, and army is the slowest moving of uh, all the. But still, because <laughs> you're massive, right? Massive <laughs> and wide change when it works. <laughs> yeah. But still, the army is very innovative. I mean, the Marines, of course, they're tiny. They have no money. They're the most, but right. maybe. But people, this misperception is crazy because the the, the military is usually way ahead of oh. others and being innovative and thinking outside the box. Uh, correct. And uh, that's what I've always found is that is that when there's new technologies, new t- techniques. There's always some young soldier or sailor there who does this on weekends, and he says, hey, why don't we do it this way? And they bring it in. And quite frankly, there's a lot of room to maneuver within sort of the bureaucratic structure. As as a historian of this world, um, looking at O&I, and I've read a good amount about it, um, being a military or a naval intelligence officer used to be a death knell for a career. Yes. Where you people scrambled to get out of it as fast as they could to be a fleet commander oh, or yeah. even even the submarine force laughed and kind of watched them and yeah, said, yeah. Oh, you're you're an ONI, I'm a sub commander, I'm right. gonna be an admiral before you are. Right. That seems to have shifted. I mean, is that another misperception that people should just kind of wipe off their Yeah, their ideas? I, I think this division between uh, uh, what we call and what has really grown, you know, between operators and intel guys, right? Uh, where being an operator was everything. Uh, but the thing that we've seen is is that uh, perhaps back in starting in the 80s, and although I didn't realize it at the time, there were a lot of things going on in the background. But when you're 22 years old, you have right. no idea what's really going on. Um, quite frankly, Intel drives operations. Okay, um, and you want to talk about the submarine force. You want to talk about the the surface force. It's probably the submariners for the most case. They are most in bed with the intelligence. Uh, they do a lot of ISR missions. Mm-hmm. Uh, good submarine captains are also very good intelligence officers. Um, and we saw in the 1980s really the growth of, you know, the absolute leaders of naval intelligence became absolute leaders across the U.S. government. People like Bobby Ray Inman, mm-hmm. the first four-star uh, intel admiral, uh, McConnell, um, um, Admiral Studeman, the elder, as we call him. His son just picked up his first star. His son is an outstanding intelligence officer as well. Um, just there is a wide range of opportunities for intelligence officers. And the thought that because you're an intelligence or you're a cryptologist, you're a lesser being is not the case. And I would say that even the last 16 years, that's become even more of the case. Right. Um, if you look at um, uh, soft operations, insurgency operations, they are built around having a really good intelligence picture. And quite frankly, if you look at the chain of events from the point where you, need, you decide you need to do something about a particular situation and the point where the door is kicked in and the action is taken, about 95% of that is about intel operations. It's about maneuvering the collection and, and doing the analysis and putting the operator in the place where he can safely execute his mission. And uh, that's, uh, I think no one who has been in the desert uh, misunderstands sort of the relationship between intelligence and operations. Is it fair to say that that intelligence is still a specific discipline, but that the, the belief in the worth of intelligence has dissipated into the the ranks, into the yes. surface fleet. I mean, I'm thinking of Mike Mullen, you know, right. uh, when he was chairman of the JCS. 
of really seeming to understand. He, he's not an Intel guy, but you could see no, that he truly he understood, understood it. it. Yeah. Is that happening across the board, do you think? Yeah, I, I think it really is. And uh, I, I had the pleasure of working for Admiral Mullen when he was the chairman. I was on the joint staff at the time. Um, good naval officers understand the role of intelligence, right? And it is a good thing when your uh, J3 or your N3 answers the intel question before you do, right? Because that means he's been listening. Mm -hmm. He understands the problem well enough to answer it intelligently. And I'm not challenged by that at all. You know, uh, some people get upset and they say, well, he shouldn't be talking about that because he's, he's an operator and you're the intel, you know, and all the rest. I say, no. It means that I've won, so right. to speak, right? Uh, I've co-opted the, the operational side to understand the intelligence picture. Because it isn't about my ego, it's about saving lives and, and ensuring success for the naval forces. And that's what that's what we're about. Yeah, I mean, mission creep used to be the term, and it just yeah. doesn't seem to apply as much anymore, especially if you yeah. can get people thinking about the intelligence picture independently right. of the intelligence branch types. Yeah, it, it, I think the first real introduction I had to this is um, uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall back in 89. Yeah, 89, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, I used to be the world's best uh, Soviet submarine analyst. Just to, I'm just telling you right now. Um, but then the Russians went away, and I, you know, I didn't have any. So what am I going to do? So I went down to Key West and did counter drug work for a couple of years, and then I came back up to Washington and did it up here. But it was actually a, a surface warfare officer, Admiral Gee, who was the commander of uh, Joint Task Force Four, uh, who really had the most mature understanding of, uh, that I've seen in a surface warfare officer of the role of intelligence. And he said, the reality is, is I don't have enough ships. I need to create operations to create intelligence. And he maneuvered the forces that he had assigned to him to create you know, intelligence opportunities. And, and this was something that I later saw when we were doing counterinsurgency work, is initially it's all big iron and we're going to go kicking doors and we're going to do all this stuff. And then you discover, well, what then, right? right? Um, and then it's about understanding the environment, understanding the people in the environment. It's about understanding the networks. And the operators need to understand that. And they start conducting operations to generate that intelligence. So I, I think that's a win for everybody. Yeah, it becomes like a leapfrog effect where the operations really lead to intelligence that leads to operations that leads to intelligence yeah. that leads to operations. Yeah, and that was the machine that McChrystal and Flynn created in, in, uh, in Balad was this sort of this realization that um, they were never going to get the cycle rate up high enough to take out the bad guys until they, brought, they bought into that, mm -hmm. right? And really, um, McChrystal and Flynn were just absolutely great at generating the machine. And first, you need to realize you need to let go. You know, need to let go of your preconceptions about who does what and why do we do things. And after you do that, it's just absolutely fantastic. It really is. Let me ask you about the, the transformation of the role of women within intelligence and, oh. and the double whammy within military right. intelligence. Again, because this, I assume, has changed since you joined right. Right, the transformation. I mean, obviously, within the military, there's every service branch has jobs available across the board right. for women now. And and it's more of a question of, and I asked this also to um, f the former G2 Mary Legere, who's oh, a three-star yeah. general, because she's, she, super at that. she's, she's great at that. But I, yeah. I, I, I want to ask you as well, was kind of how you've seen mm -hmm. the opportunities for women out there changing within not only intelligence, but also within the military branches. 
I think with intelligence, the women within intelligence, when I came in in 1985, um, probably about half the people I hung out with at ONI uh, were uh, female uh, naval intelligence officers. And they were, at the time, great intelligence officers limited to just serving with P3 squadrons. So, um, and I love P3 squadrons because, you know, they're, they're extremely helpful. When you already mentioned that you were the world's leading expert uh, on I, Soviet subs, so of course you love people. Yeah, I loved them. Yeah. Uh, but, but the interesting thing is, and they really kicked ass. They did really well. And I think that because of the quality of their work, uh, the importance of the area that they were working in, uh, when the doors open where you can start sending female officers afloat, it wasn't a hard, it wasn't a hard thing, right? Um, it was a little bit difficult in the 90s, I understand, from my friends. But I tell you what, their performance made the difference, right? Mm -hmm. Now, um, but intelligence people are sort of off in our own little world, right? Um, we weren't trying to command submarines. We weren't uh, driving ships and things like that. Um, and so, in my mind, intelligence, the intelligence community has always been a little bit more advanced than the military as a whole. Um, and that's been advantageous to the military women, I think, uh, because they've been able to grow up in a, in a, in a group of or a community that was like, you know, we, we really don't care, you know, about gender or whatever. Right. What we care about is how smart you are and how well you communicate. And, and so we've just built on that. And I think that you look at a lot of the great intelligence officers that have come up. Mary Legere is a tremendous example. Um, you know, she's known everything there is to know about the Korea theater. Uh, she did terrifically in Iraq when she was uh, uh, the uh, J-2 there. Um, just there are women across, uh, across the board who are leaders in the community right now. Uh, and a lot of female leaders that came out of naval intelligence. Uh, Melissa Drisco, who I was on watch with back in 1985 and 86, is now the deputy director at, at uh, DIA. And I, I just can go on with mm -hmm. other examples. Uh, you just look around and you say, yeah, the leadership in the intelligence community and across the services, my own boss, uh, Jan Tai, um, uh, the director of naval intelligence right now, you know, and it's, um, she's the first female director of naval intelligence, and it's like, it's not a big deal. Right. You know, it's just not a big deal. It's just, yeah, very rarely is it, you know, is it it's emphasized. It's, it's not just, emphasized. Yeah. It's just not something that you do. Right. right? Um, so, yeah, it's, the intelligence community and, and the services have always had maybe a little bit different view on the whole gender question than the than the op, the operational forces and things mm -hmm. like that. So, uh, I'm going to ask you an admittedly obnoxiously broad question <laughs> okay. that you can decide to narrow down how you want to. So, uh, over your career, how has naval intelligence, in a broad sense, evolved? How 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 has your job I know your job itself, your title-wise, is different, but how has the job of a naval intelligence officer or a naval intelligence civilian yeah. changed? And can't just say the Cold War ended, but yes. in a broader sense, yes. since you began to now. Yeah, I, I would say the, the, the essential skill sets of a naval intelligence officer remains the same. And uh, whether it was in a technical field, understanding foreign technical capabilities uh, and understanding them at an engineering level of detail, or an op the thing that naval intelligence is different than the other MI services is uh, the operational intelligence aspect, right? Um, 
what happened at the Battle of Midway and Pearl Harbor and the whole campaign across the South Pacific is still very relevant to what we do today. And, and those things have remained consistent. And the skill set of a naval intelligence officer, whether civilian, enlisted, or officer, is actually, and that op intel aspect of it, the operational intelligence aspect of it, is something that I'm proud to say that naval intelligence has excelled in, right? Um, if you look at um, who ran intelligence fusion centers in Iraq, Afghanistan, Horn of Africa, invariably you'll find a naval intelligence officer. Why? Because they're really good at putting together the operational picture. Mm -hmm. Whether they knew anything about, uh, you know, the you know the district, uh, Maywan district in, in Kandahar, you know, so, you know, give them ten minutes and they'll figure it out, right? right? Um, and so those skill sets have remained consistent. What has been added on to what we've had to do today is that there are other skills that we need to bring into what our traditional skill sets. Right, the understanding of the electromagnetic warfare, mm -hmm. which is highly complex, and right. that brings back, um, you know, with the near-peer competitors, there's a lot more things we need to take on board, and it's a little bit more difficult uh, today, but we're uh, we're getting really good at it, and I'm pretty I'm pretty proud of it. So, we'll we'll, we'll break it down a little bit as sure. we move forward. But let me let me ask you the question. You mentioned fusion centers, and that kind yeah. of a good segue to my next question. Yeah. What about naval intelligence place among the other IC agencies? Kind of now, you know, in the last ten years, there's been this kind of this nominal bringing together right. of the agencies yeah. to become the quote unquote capital I, capital C intelligence community. Right? Has that impacted the the way the job works? Certainly at the high levels like yours, it impacted the way your job works. Right. I think it, it's uh, so. Let's talk about naval intelligence place in the intelligence mm -hmm. community. So we're actually the oldest intelligence organization in, in the U.S. government. Uh, we started in 1882. Um, and so we've, we like to build on that. Um, we have a very highly competent workforce. We have great officers and enlisted. Um, our advantage is, is that we have those great people and we're inside the Washington area. <laughs> and so when you talk to the other service intel centers, you know, the advantage of being within Washington and being able to, on a daily basis, interact with CIA folks mm -hmm. and interact with NSA. Uh, you know, my opportunities to go work up at NSA or CIA was derived out of the fact that location is everything. Right. Right. Um, I think that we, for our area, we do a really good job. Um, we are uh, not NSA and we're not DIA. Um, but I think that among the service intel centers, I'm really proud of where we're at. I, I think all the service intel centers do better than a lot of people realize. Right. Uh, our uh, customer is uh, the U.S. Navy and making sure that the U.S. Navy gets what they need to build the next Navy. Um, you know, we have to do assessments. Uh, we're in the process of building a new SSBN force, right, the Columbia SSBN. Uh, Columbia is going to... The first one won't pop out until the late 2020s, and it'll be operation for 40 years after that. Right. So imagine having to do threat intelligence yeah, no, that's for the next 60 years. Because it, it hasn't, it's kind of failed a little bit before, I think, with right. the Seawolf class, which yeah. was going to revolutionize everything, and right. the Cold War ended. The Cold War ended, yeah. right? And uh, 
And so that, that's actually really interesting. So you try to do everything at once. The uh, Sea Wolf was a heck of a submarine, yeah. right? But it was like the most advanced submarine in the history of the universe, you know? Um, and it was built on the premise that the Soviets would continue on their building plan and things of that nature. Um, and so the threat collapsed underneath them. And then you can't, you can't really, with the peace dividend, you can't really build, continue to build Sea Wolf and all the rest of that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. But you take those lessons and you roll them into Virginia, you roll them into right. Columbia, uh, and guess what? You know, uh, um, Putin, when he came back into the presidency back in the early 2000s, uh, the submarine, the Russian submarine force was one of the areas. He made some really great strategic choices about where he made his investments. And one of those areas was the, the Russian Navy. Uh, they spent the 90s getting rid of a lot of old crap that they had, had hanging around since the 1950s. And a lot of Kilo 2s sailing around anymore. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, getting, I mean, they, when I left the business in, uh, the submarine business in 92, I mean, they still had Novembers and Echoes right. and, I mean, first, like, first-generation submarines. Uh, that would be like us having Nautilus still in mm -hmm. operation. Um, and he made a, a really deliberate choice to get rid of the older class of submarines to make strategic investments. Uh, and he is benefiting from those strategic investments th uh, today. Um, and so it's incumbent upon us in naval intelligence to make sure that we were tracking it all the way, all the way along. We understand uh, the capabilities of Severodvinsk and Dolgorupi, and then we're able to uh, incorporate that into threat assessments for uh, Colombia. We'll be right back after this. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. Let me ask you about multinational cooperation. This is not a throwaway question about how the five eyes work. I, yeah, I'm no. interested to see that some of those what we consider enemies or at least adversaries are now relatively close allies. And the, the mm -hmm. Vietnam is the one that really pops in my head. I mean, oh, the, I'm fascinated by Vietnam. Yeah, it's the idea of the, the South China Sea and some of these countries coming together mm -hmm. because China scares the hell out of everybody. Yeah. That you know, a generation ago or less were arch enemies or people we certainly wouldn't talk to and now right. we're, we're, we're having joint operations with them. It yeah. just seems fascinating to me. How much within your job, within you know, the, the ONI, are you dealing with your counterparts of foreign navies? Uh, I do so quite frequently. Um, and I think the important thing to keep in mind is something that uh, uh, somebody once said, and I can't remember the, the name of the figure who said it, is... Uh, nations don't have permanent allies, they have permanent interest, mm -hmm. right? 
and it's important to stay focused on that. And um, and it's important in the intelligence community or intelligence business to think about the future, right? So China is a really difficult problem. Um, but it's only a difficult problem if you think about it in terms of just China, U.S. Right. Right. Um, so you really need to think about um, what are the traditional strengths of the United States, which is we have true friends and allies and partners. And uh, as long as we continue to exhibit le- leadership in that area, um, people want to work with us. Um, I see that around the world uh, when I travel. Um, and uh, I think that if we provide people an opportunity and we're, we're sort of sensitive to uh, how they want to do things, uh, I think that, that we can create a lot of opportunities for mm-hmm. ourselves. And, and you never want it to be uh, 1v1. You don't want it to be U.S.-China. Right. You want it to be, you know, China versus everybody. Right. Right? Well, and China is finding ways to close the gap, and they're doing it in innovative ways. They're not building a fleet of aircraft carriers. No. You know, they're trying to find... As much as I would like them to do Right, so. yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, you know, the, the wonky term, you know, A2AD, they're looking yeah. at area, you know, area, anti-axis area denial operations, building anti-ship missiles and right. stuff. And you talk about thinking and planning out decades right. ahead. right. You know, I think back to those that talked about how the battleship was going to be the the king of the ocean yeah. in the twenties and thirties. Yeah. We say the same thing now about the big, like the Nimitz clash just rolled off. It's the size of a yeah, it's a couple hundred. city blocks yeah. and others. And, and 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 you know, China's not trying to match us one for one. They're trying right. to look at different and innovative ways of doing it. And, and I'm not trying to plug the book Ghost Fleet if you've read it. If not, I have. Um, I love it. I think it's a great book. It's you know the red storm rising, I guess, yeah. of the 21st century. But network systems bring the good with the bad. Right. You know the idea of we we are getting to the point where we're very reliant on technology that could kind of come back to bite us in the end. Right. Um, where do you see this going? I mean, without getting to, this could yeah. be a five hour conversation. Yeah. But in a general sense, <laughs> you know, I mean, how much. I'm certainly you're paying attention to what the Chinese are up to, but that right. seems like it'd be very hard to do long-term planning with the kind of evolution of how fast this is going. I think this this gets into a couple of your previous questions. You know, the skill sets of a naval intelligence officer um, and bringing in uh, other sort of domain knowledge areas. And and one of those domain knowledge areas is, um, you know, what is the rise of networks and AI and machine learning mean to your skill set, right? Um, I think I was fascinated by, I, I almost went out and bought it the day that it was available um, because I'm a real fan of Peter Singer. I'd read some of his previous books. Um, and I thought it was a very coherent way of how he told the story, mm-hmm. which is a very realistic way in which it could happen. Um, he pushed some things because he wanted to create certain situations, but, I mean, that all works. Mm-hmm. It really does. <clears throat> I think that it's important... Uh, to be very knowledgeable in a variety of domains of knowledge, uh, to be flexible and innovative in how uh, people put things together, right? And to recognize, and don't be roped into, um, uh, well, A2AD equals this, and the range ring is an iron bubble that goes out. And the CNO is actually, he's pretty pretty, uh, specific on this, in that there has always been A2AD, Right, um, the range ring is not an iron bubble. Uh, there are things that we can do to get in and out as we need, uh, but you need to be flexible in how you think about things. Right, you need to do things in innovative ways. 
Uh, you need to be prepared to do things in ways that don't necessarily make you comfortable. Uh, I'll tell you my big concern is sort of the risk, risk calculation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you look at a near-peer uh, crisis going into a war-type situation, um, your risk calculation has to be radically different than where our risk calculation has been over the last 16, 15 years, right? Um, And so you need to be prepared to do some things that make you really uncomfortable. And uh, I think that you need to be innovative in how you put together things. You need to be able to adopt, uh, you know, commercial items and commercial capabilities into your capabilities. And you need to be able to go old school at a drop of a hat. Right. Right? You need to be able to say, okay, satellites are gone. Where is that teletype operator, right? Or celestial navigation. Where is the celestial navigation, right? Um, And I had a friend of mine who said, uh, you need to be able to do the basics brilliantly, right? And so um, you need to do well at the basics of your craft. And whether that craft is intelligence, whether that craft is uh, ASW uh, or anti-ship operations, uh, very uh, uh, agile logistics. Logistics are everything. Right. Um, and uh, has that atrophied over the last fifteen years because of the the, the focus on in counterterrorism and and I, maybe that's an unfair question. Did it have the opportunity to atrophy and there were people yeah. fighting back against it? <laughs> yeah. I don't, how do you, I don't know how you want to answer that, but I, you know it, it's. I think you, you need to understand the, na- the nation had a priority mm-hmm. on activities in, uh, in CENTCOM AOR. It's a highly permissive environment. It is uh, primarily a ground force. Uh, it took up a lot of money. Um, and naval forces are very expensive. And uh, they need to be refreshed at a, at a set rate um, because they tend to when they become obsolete, they become obsolete, to, you know, almost right. totally, right? And so the nation needs to decide whether they want to invest in a naval force that can uh, be competitive in a near-peer competition. And they need to understand that it will not be overwhelming dominance. Hmm. It'll be a tough fight. And I think we've, we've become accustomed to being so much better than everybody else right. that we haven't seen a slug match yeah. since 1945, probably. I mean, Vietnam just didn't... It no. was asymmetrical, right? It wasn't... It was an asymmetrical... Yeah, and yeah there's a whole discussion about that, but no. yeah. No, and, and that this, this is... Um, and the Navy is thinking seriously about this. Um, I think uh, people like uh, Admiral Harris and, and Scott Swift out in Hawaii are thinking some really terrible, dark thoughts. Well, yeah. I, I, you think, I, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, you probably do, but you sink one American aircraft carrier with all hands, that's basically the amount of people that died on 9-11. Yes. Yeah. And this is, <clears throat> this is a, this is something that I think about a lot, Yeah. right? Um, uh, potentially one day of combat in the Western Pacific, we can lose as many uh, sailors, uh, as we've lost in 16 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it's going to be it, uh, and that's something that you know you need to make sure that uh, the American 
people understand, okay? Um, and this drives one of the CNO's real <clears throat> uh, issues is making sure that the American sailor is a tough sailor yeah. and understands that it's going to be a tough fight. And, uh, and we need to just make sure that people understand. And I think if the American people understood if, uh, you know, what kind of issues that we're dealing with, uh, I'm a firm believer that not fighting is a, is a good answer if you can achieve your national goals yeah. in other ways. And so smart national planning is really, really critical. One thing that fascinates me and, and is that most maps of the world uh, for the past, let's say, millennia yeah. have been pretty much the same. But there's a pretty radical transformation taking place up north. Yes. The Arctic Ocean is actually becoming a pretty significant ocean. It really is. And the passability of it is it's, it has some real diplomatic and geopolitical you know, implications in the next 10, 15, 20 years. It really does. And, you know, the Army has really been the ones, I guess, thinking a whole lot about Russia as right. a potential adversary, dealing with the little green men and hybrid warfare, you know, realities on the ground, whether it's in Crimea or Ukraine. Um, but you have to think about how the opening of the Arctic and mm-hmm. how hybrid warfare can actually be expanded to naval assets. Right. Is that something that, you know, while it may not be priority number one, is on that list somewhere, thinking about the future potential issues about not only the Arctic, but dealing with a resurgent Russia. I mean, you talked about it a little bit. But. Yeah, I think that, and it's actually on the front of my mind, because the, the Secretary of the Navy was just recently in Iceland for a series of Arctic meetings with the Arctic Council and things like that. So uh, we did the prep uh, with him uh, to, to uh, talk about, you know, what's real and what's not real up there. The Arctic is a really interesting thing, is that it's, uh, uh, what the Russians are doing up there is essentially reinvesting in a lot of facilities that they had back during the Cold War that they had closed up due to lack of funds and et cetera. Uh, the issue of uh, more ice-free areas for longer amounts of time, mm-hmm. really important, really important. Um, and I think that if the price of oil gets to a certain point, then the, the uh, resource game up in the Arctic right. becomes viable um, um, because you need a, sort of a higher price of oil to make that really economically viable. Um, and so I think it's a really interesting uh, situation up there. It's really important that we work with our allies and work with all the partners and, and just make sure we understand what everybody's doing. And the good news is all the other countries that that abut the Arctic are our allies. Correct. You know, you talked about it's not just one-on-one. It's everybody versus the, the bad guy. And well, in this case, it's... Yeah, and there, but there's a venue with the Arctic, various Arctic councils to have, you know, good... There's a set of rules on how we have conversations about mm-hmm. it. I think there's only one or two areas where there's uh, um, boundary disputes mm-hmm. uh, ongoing, and then there is a, there's a formal process to resolve those. Um, and that's that's the important thing, is that having a a formal process where uh, you can sort of take a look at the science related to the the claim and you can adjudicate the claim and everybody accepts that's what the adjudication is. Um, And so there's a structure and a process in place there. Um, I think the Arctic's really important. I think that we should uh, continue to uh, support the Coast Guard in in terms, I think there was a, uh, in the uh, most recent budget year, there was a uh, planning for uh, more icebreakers right. was laid in 
Um, so, I mean, it's, it's something that we're going to have to get back into, I think. The ONI has production authority for worldwide scientific and technical developments. And that's you kind of... For the, naval. Yeah, yeah, for naval, right? Yeah. So you're focused on, you know, the, the understanding technological developments when right. it comes to that. In a general sense, how do we keep abreast of that? Because my, my background is S&T as well, and, yeah. and it's not necessarily just understanding what is being built or being discovered naturally, right. but also the co-option of our technology or Western yeah. technology. I think of North Korea using the internet against us. Right. Right, where they all of a sudden have capabilities they never could have developed in-house. Right. But they're taking, you know, on the Army side, this would be like ISIS with M1 tanks. Right. So, so how do you double that? How do you keep abreast of what's happening naturally? And right. you, know, you can use North Korea as a good example of this, right? right Whether right. they're, you know, we're trying to figure out, are they developing solid fuel for the rockets? Or what are they grabbing from China or even the West to potentially be able to use against us as well? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting problem is that is as technology becomes more diffuse, um, the opportunity to, to co-opt commercial technology or even academic kind of things that are still in the academic world and then bring it into your war fight is really kind of interesting right now. You know, in, in the past it was, you know, decades to sort of watch these changes happen. And just the, the, the growth uh, on incorporation of new technology has gone exponential. So if you want a, an intelligence force that's looking at S&T issues, they need to be cognizant of the developments in the commercial world. Mm -hmm. And so, and this gets back to the, your first question about who are we hiring and things like that. That's why it's very important to keep refreshing your, your sort of your engineering and technology space. So they're very familiar with, you know, sort of developmental trends in the academic world. They bring that into uh, bring that into ONI, and they say, hey, I remember my professor was talking about this, and let's look at that. Mm -hmm. um, the beautiful thing is that people write a ton of stuff in open source, you know, right. and uh, and you can take that and really think about it. And this gets into the innovation of how you think. This, this is why we want innovative thinkers within naval intelligence. Let me ask you also about support for irregular warfare operations. Because right. I think that's something that you've been very busy doing, I assume, over the last decade and a half yeah. or so. Yes. Um, from 2009 to 2011, you were the deputy director of the Afghan-Pakistan Task Force. And right. I think of there was a relatively high-profile special operations irregular warfare raid Yes. During that time period, yeah. uh, in yeah. Abbottabad, Pakistan, which I knew nothing about. Okay, uh, that was my question. Actually, I want. I wondered how much that was. No, this is yeah. this is. Uh, you were the J two. You were in that. You were part of the J two. I was there, in the J two yeah. in the uh, AFPAC task force, um, and uh, that was a very close hold operation. Yeah. And quite frankly, good on them. Yeah. Right. They brought in the people that they needed to bring in. They executed it well. And um, I am uh, extremely proud of what the IC did, what the CIA folks did, what NGA did. Um, extremely proud of what happened there, right? Yeah. I, I have a personal interest. We lost seven naval intelligence people uh, on 9-11, okay? Uh, we, lost, uh, we also lost a Navy reservist who was in the ONI reserve unit. Um, it was a personal thing to us. And so I was quite proud to see that we were able to pull that off and do it. So. And that seems to really highlight the, the close-knit cooperation between the different IC agencies. I mean, in right. bringing in 
kind of the special operations forces. I mean, I think right. one of the things that a lot of the public doesn't understand that I'm trying to hammer in the head is that there used to be a bit of a solid line of demarcation between right. the military militarization yeah. of kicking down doors and doing things, right. and then the intelligence community. Right. And it doesn't exist anymore. No. I mean, it's you have CIA officers at Tora Bora going right. after bin Laden, and then you have think of Operation Red Wing, where you've got yeah. SEALs going in doing reconnaissance and intelligence gathering missions right. and not going to kill somebody, and it just doesn't exist anymore. Right. I mean, is that something that is a, a 9-11 symptom, or is it something that you saw starting a little bit before that? Um, I would say that it was probably something that we had seen, but it was at a very low rate and a very small percentage of the force, mm-hmm. uh, which you saw after 9-11, uh, was, you know, the wholesale involvement of white and black soft um, and uh, in those kind of operations and sort of the intelligence preparation of the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's best to be in there quietly, collect the intelligence, pull it out, and then go in and be very specific about what you want to do. Um, and so I think that's, that is, it is a fine art, what's going on in the soft community. Well, you think the dissemination of knowing how to do intelligence right. is even being pushed. I mean, yeah. I remember, I, I'm, I'm a, an army vet of the 90s. So okay. I think of the Green Berets, the SF, capital S, capital right, F guys, right, were the right. thinkers yeah. of the soft community, right? <laughs> yeah. They went in and taught and spoke all these languages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the joke was, if you wanted to take an air base, you dropped in Rangers. If you wanted to blow something up, you sent in the SEALs. Right, right. You know, Marine Force Recon, I guess, are the Raiders now. Yeah. You want to, you know, take an island, you right. sent them in. Now everyone needs to be a lot more cerebral yeah. than they were before because there's a lot of thinking going on yeah, in the to, soft community. You have to do a lot of thinking. I mean, some of the most brilliant officers and men that I have worked with, uh, and women, there have been some women uh, uh, that I've worked with, uh, have been uh, Green Berets, they have been SEALs, and these are the, they're extremely thoughtful. Uh, they're capable of great violence, but they are... they're a successful day for them is achieving the ends without violence. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's a terrific thing. I, I, I just really, um, I just really, uh, admire them greatly because they are doing really great work. I think it's interesting. Recently, it looks like, uh, the CIA dumped the rest of, or a lot of the, uh, bin Laden files, bin, bin yeah. Laden files right. And so people are, are pouring through those and stuff like that. But think about that, right? So you had uh, a SEAL team dropped in there. Uh, their helicopter is on fire. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, they're like 30 seconds away from disaster. But they're taking the time to fill duffel bags full of stuff. Yeah. Okay, and that didn't happen by accident. Well, and I think that's, you know, when, we're, when we have separation from the generation that lived through 9-11 and historians are looking back at it, they'll probably say the real success of that raid may have not been killing Osama bin Laden. Yeah. It was all the intel it was all the that intel. That was scooped up right. from his house. Right. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things. When I was in Afghanistan, I, I ran the uh, DIA operations in Afghanistan, and, and we provided a lot of the sensitive site exploitation forces. And, you know, that's a very, you have a limited amount of time on site uh, to collect all the material. There is, there is SOP involved in doing that. And we've developed that to a very high science. And, uh, and I think that no matter what kind of combat operations you're thinking about in the future, everybody who's been doing this knows that 
hey, if I don't walk out of there with a duffel bag full of thumb drives and hard drives and things like that, then I have failed in the mm-hmm. mission. Let me ask you about support for these operations and all sorts of operation because I want, I want to ask you about dissemination of intelligence because one thing I find interesting about intelligence in the military versus the civilian agencies is that the consumer of intelligence is not necessarily a top-level policymaker Correct. like the president. And in some cases, consumer intelligence is the warfighter on the ground right. or the sea or the destroyer captain or the, the butter bar ensign or right. an E-5 SEAL team member. How does this dynamic shape what you do? I mean, in essence, this is a question about intelligence flowing downward right. versus upward. I think flowing downward is, in many cases, and I'm biased uh, because I've been in that, uh, uh, flowing downward is more satisfying uh, because you have a more direct impact on uh, the safety of your crew, of, of your shipmates, right? Uh, it's about making sure the submariner is safe that he's able to carry out his operations in a good way. I think it's good to keep the National uh, Command Authority uh, uh, informed. Um, I know that um, CIA especially has honed that to a high craft. Um, But quite frankly, uh, sometimes policymakers don't really take a lot of action on the intelligence. Because uh, if it's getting up to their level, there's some hard questions there, right? Uh, But if I can make the difference in a shipmate's life, then I can do that. Then I'd rather do that. Let me, let me wrap up with this question. I think this is a, a key question, certainly for our audience. And how do we make sure that we're always training, teaching the next group of intelligence officers? Really, how do we make sure we create the next you? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean, that's look, not possible. There's not that many bartenders yeah. out there. Well, let me, let me, <laughs> let, me credit, let me kind of sub-question yeah. this a little bit. I mean, yeah. the, the job of intelligence across the board requires constant learning and evolving. And yeah. in, the, in the military side, you know, professional military education courses can't hope to keep up no. with changes. And even on-the-job training is insufficient right. in most cases to do this. So what do we make sure that, that the officers and civilians at ONI can continue to grow and evolve? Like, what, what's in place? Like, what, how do we keep the process going? I think it's important that we tell our stories, right? Uh, the... the uh, the older folks, the senior folks, they tell their stories. Uh, you have to mentor people. You need to tell them it's okay to stop being a naval architect. It's time for you to go do this budget job so you can understand how things come together, right? Um, you do that through you know, formal programs, informal programs. Uh, for officers, you make sure officer and enlisted, you make sure they have a good variety of tours that they can learn these things. If you selected the right people at the front end and that they're interested in expanding their horizons, um, you just keep them interested and you keep moving them around. You allow them to be experts in their field, but at a certain point you need to move them around Mm -hmm. so you can expand them and understand. I think you have to have a natural curiosity. And so we tend to to attract the naturally curious. And so you just have to uh, facilitate that. You need to encourage that. You need to sometimes get the middle management out of the way. You know, middle management has a role, right? They have to get the job done. And if you take their analysts and you say, hey, this person needs to go do a joint duty assignment, it's problematic for them. Right. Because they, they have the 10-meter target. Uh, we got to be, the leaders of the intelligence community have to be worried about the 1,000-meter the target. And it's about developing the next generation. You need to support the analysts. You need to do everything you can to make sure they're the best. Because quite frankly, the, the quality of the individuals that we're hiring today and we've hired over the last, uh, really the 9-11 generation is unbelievably talented. 
uh, you cannot imagine how wonderful uh, these young people are and they're devoted to their their craft they're extraordinarily knowledgeable uh, they're great people and they're just fun to hang out with and that's uh, you just got to take care of them I run into a lot of late 20s early 30s former intelligence officers right how do you avoid burnout how is it is it important mm. to tell people it's okay to fail is it important to tell people that you know uh, you're doing an incredibly interesting job, but it's incredibly difficult at the same time. Yeah. You're never going to be perfect. It, it can be quite draining. So uh, when I was in the AFPAC task force, uh, the, the reality of my job was filling DIA positions in Afghanistan. And so it was uh, getting human guys in theater. It was getting uh, sensitive site exploitation guys, lab guys, analysts, collectors, collection managers into theater. And it was... And I had civilians uh, who were in their you know, mid-20s who had already deployed four or five times. Mm -hmm. And it would be six months on, eight months off, 12 months off, six months on. And, um, and I had to ask some people to go back who, um, you know, because the demand was so great during that part of the surge within Afghanistan that it was really hard. And mm -hmm. so... Um, and I would have kids come back and say, I just can't do it. I said, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Okay? You have done your nation a great service. Go do something interesting. And maybe five or ten years, if you, you still want to do this, it'll be here for you. You know? I can't ask any more than that. And, and I think that's what happened, is that um, you've met a lot of uh, young folks who did a lot of great things in their 20s, and they're just totally burnt out. Uh, the American people need to understand that there were a lot of civilians and military guys who went back, especially on intelligence side, because we were, you know, some of us had one-for-one one dwell times and things like right. that. Um, they've done a great service for this country. And uh, they went there when a lot of people wouldn't. And so um, I'm proud to have served with them. And uh, if they want to go, um, I have one of my... One of my analysts is now a uh, editor at History Mu uh, History Magazine or American History Magazine. He's a great guy, and he's very proud of his service. Uh, but now he's doing something different, mm -hmm. and that's okay. Well, Lynn Wright is the deputy director of Naval Intelligence and the head of the Naval Intelligence activity. Lynn, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today sure. at Spycast. No problem. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.